0: From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McHour. This week in Juneau Beach, Florida, on this week's edition, a report from the Consumer Electronics Show, why voluntary climate risk disclosure is going mainstream, we issue our trend naming report card, and how will the tax changes affect corporate energy buyers. It's a matter of deductions, this week on 350. It's January 12th, 2018. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me up Interstate 95 is Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather.
1: Hey, Joel, happy to see you, or actually not see you, but hear you again this week. <laughs> uh, Great to and be this <laughs> And you're on the same route as I am. Why are you in Florida this week?
0: Well, this is January, which you knew, and you also know that January, along with May and September... Are the months in which we hold meetings of the GreenBiz Executive Networks? So we have three meetings each of those months, and so we're having this week. We have the first of those uh, January meetings, uh, as I said in Juno Beach, at the corporate headquarters of Next Era. Next era is a uh, – if you don't know – I know you know about it because you cover energy, but a lot of people don't. It's a Fortune 200 energy company that has uh, $17 billion annual sales and its, it's subsidiaries uh, – more people know, I think, that, that Florida Power and Light – Uh, One of its its biggest subsidiaries, and it delivers electricity to nearly five million customers in Florida, and it's the third largest utility. So, uh, they're a member of the network, and we've been uh, they've hosted our meeting this week, and it was quite lovely. A couple, you know, we had we met uh, for the first day and had dinner uh, Wednesday night at the Manatee Lagoon.
1: Manatees. I love manatees. Did you see any?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is dedicated to educating the public about manatees and uh, inspiring communities to preserve and protect Florida's environment and wildlife for future generations. That's from their mission statement. Uh, but, yeah, it's a beautiful space. Uh, we we had the meeting there and then we had a dinner there that evening. And then the second day of the meeting, uh, when that was all over, we toured the Loggerhead Marine Life Center. That's a uh, non-profit focused on loggerhead turtles and ocean and sea turtle conservation, education research, all that. So turtles and manatees.
1: Yeah, I've, I actually, when I went into the Keys a couple years ago, I, I was able to see a turtle rescue operation, which is pretty cool. Um, and quite interesting, Florida, it looks like they dodged the drilling bullet, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, they dodged the oil drilling bullet, uh, apparently, uh, uh, Secretary Zinke and uh, and President Trump have uh, somehow decided that even though every governor uh, along the East and West Coast was not at all happy about plans to do offshore drilling, only Governor Scott of Florida seemed to get a reprieve, but um, you know there's a lot going on here in Florida and the conservation side and 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 these sea sea turtles are one part of that that they need to protect of course we need to protect them in California. We need to protect them in New Jersey. And so uh, we'll see where that all goes. And by the way, having seen these turtles at the Loggerhead Marine Life Center, I now understand that the term being at loggerheads has nothing to do with turtles. <laughs> I didn't
2: <laughs> know
0: that, It's actually, actually. Uh, a British uh, Britishism. Um, and it, it it's originally meant uh, just sort of being at odds, being th- – a loggerhead was a stupid person, like a blockhead. In fact, Shakespeare refers to the loggerheads in that way in Love's Labor's Lost. Um, and so that's a little uh, word trivia there. But, but what's interesting, though, and I also happen to notice a report that just came out this week around uh, turtles off the Great Barrier Reef, and that climate change is causing some sea turtle populations. To turn entirely female,
1: yeah, I saw that too i, I haven't quite under I don't quite understand the science behind that I, I have to tell you though I mean the diving I, I, as, as you know I, I dive and um, they're such amazing creatures it's amazing to watch them and you know just they're so graceful and and peaceful and uh, yep,
0: yeah well, I'll give you thirty seconds on the science behind it since you kind of asked. Sea turtles have temperature-dependent sex determination. The females hatch uh, when the water is warmer than, and the males hatch when it's cooler. Oh, and so, okay. um, the, with the water warmer, I guess the, women, the females are the only ones who can take the heat. But um, not
1: much different from humans. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, you can read about that. But okay,
1: um, okay, interesting.
0: Let's uh, we're gonna skip doing the weekend review this this time because we, we actually are about to uh, next week uh, get into the years ahead. Uh, the state of green business report comes out on Tuesday, January 16th with a webcast live webcast at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific. Uh, do you need to sign up for on the by just going to greenbiz.com. Um, and uh, we're going to take a look back so let's get to the future in review
3: hi this is solitaire townsend co-founder of the change agency futera what's the biggest challenge of 2018 boy what isn't a challenge right now So many things are changing around the world, for good, for bad, or for who the hell knows. But in 2018, I feel there is a big challenge for all of us, all of us who work in sustainability, who work in purpose, and who work in positive change. And that is to hold on to our optimism Optimism is a mindset, it's a way of looking at the world. As Winston Churchill said, the pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity and the optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. From Martin Luther King who said we have a dream to Nelson Mandela who said it always seems impossible until it's done, never have those quotes felt quite so real to me as they do today. Our belief that it is possible for there to be seven to nine to 10 billion human beings, all fed, all healthy, all educated, powered by renewable energy, living in a planet within its planetary boundaries with functioning, healthy, restored ecosystems, thinking about what we're gonna do next, where we're gonna go. Our ability to believe that is possible, to accept nothing less, is going to be put to the test and is going to be more important than ever.
0: And you just heard another of the look-aheads, uh, what's going to be uh, happening and uh, what uh, people in the sustainability community are looking forward to or at least committed to do. In 2018, we've run those for the past uh uh, two or three episodes. Uh, this is the last time we'll do that, but we got a few this week. And we always love to hear from you and, and uh, what people are working on. But let's talk about what we're doing next week and, and a little bit of a look back. So every year we publish the State of Green Business Report. It's, this, is, this will be our 11th annual edition. We started in 2008. And one of the things we've done is we have named the Ten trends we think sustainability professionals should be paying attention to in the year ahead, or it's really the year or two, because some of these trends aren't aren't as fast moving as others. So we've done, uh, I guess, 110 of these now. Um, and thought as we get ready to, uh, we'll, we'll have a 110 uh, after next week. As we get ready to to launch our next 10, that maybe we should take a look back at the things we got right and the things we didn't. And by the way, I, I will say that we have gotten far more right than not in terms of being at the leading edge of uh, just pretty much ahead of the mainstream uh, on naming some of the trends that were that would be coming along. Um, but let's pick three that we nailed, and three that we sort of whiffed. Um, Heather, I'll let you have the honors of taking the, the, the success stories.
1: Well, I'm, I'm going to just take issue with the whiffing because I think it's a, l- a little bit less of a, that than than we haven't gotten there yet. But um, the things that we nailed, yes, I um, have had the pleasure of writing several of these pieces actually, and not because I'm smart or anything, but because I demanded to uh, <laughs> pick the, <laughs> to be on those topics. So things that we nailed, I would think um, last year uh, one of our lead pieces was on the blockchain, the the uh, the. The theme was the blockchain supports sustainability. And boy, um, right after that published in, in, in early uh, February, January, we just got a flood of activity. Um, and it, there's two areas that I'm watching very closely and continue to watch closely in 2018. And, and the first of wh- is the applications that use blockchain for energy, um, trading, for energy uh, pricing, um, and for energy d- distribution. So definitely we're in still in the pilot mode, if you will, the trial phasing. But um, there was a flood of activity. Uh, one of the companies that we're watching really closely is um, LO3 Energy. They're the ones in Brooklyn that, that they have this thing called the Brooklyn microgrid, and um, they're testing ways of allowing the neighborhood to buy and sell the solar power. So if I'm a commercial business and I have solar panels on my roofs, roof and, and someone wants to, quote, buy, end quote, some of that energy, you know, how do I do that? Um, so that company uh, just got a, a, they've been involved with Siemens for about two years now. And they just got a, a, Investment at the end of last year, um, and more money uh, to to help support what they're doing, and they've also expanded their trials into Europe, um, into some of the markets there. So um, that's one of the applications I'm watching closely. The second is the the supply chain space, right? So how does the blockchain? And I, I suppose I should explain for those who who, who haven't been brainwashed like I have. Um, that the blockchain is really um, a ledger, if you will. you can think of it as a ledger, a way of following transactions of of verifying, of validating and of adding information. So you know, okay, this person touched it at this time um, and now this person quote owns it or it's being passed along here. basically just a way of of uh, monitoring a transaction. Well, so one application is energy. The second is supply chain traceability. And at the end of last year, we saw uh, Unilever uh, embark on a project with a number of banks to test how this could be used to verify the provenance of of different commodities like coffee and, and, and so forth. So that, I think, was a... Maybe that was a home run. I don't know. Maybe even a grand slam.
0: <laughs> I certainly think so. So that's one. Give us yeah, two more. Yeah, that's
1: one. There are two more. Microgrids. Okay. Um, that was from 2016. The power of microgrids gets gets unleashed. Again, a big breakthrough year last year for one good reason and one bad reason. Um, the good reason is that uh, the energy storage component of, of that space um, just became a lot more viable. The technology was maturing. The pricing curve is coming down. Um, it's becoming more commonplace, if if you will, at least in in discussion points. So people are more willing to consider it as part of a, a solution. And that's you know that was the good reason. The bad reason is that we got whacked with with all those hurricanes in the. Uh, the, in the season last year in the United States, um, and all of a sudden, we we really, really, really uh, people in Texas, and Florida, and of course in Puerto Rico understood the the vulnerability that we have of relying on the central grid for energy, and the, the really the need to look at a different approach um, when we rebuild. So why would we create this uh, this centralized distribution system if we know how vulnerable we're going to be? It just um, it, it turns out that it's you know often it's not in those situations it's not that that it, that a transmission uh, center got taken out or a tra- you know it's not usually the the generating infrastructure that's the problem it's the distribution infrastructure. so again another trend that keeps picking up and then finally all related to to, to the other two, uh, Big big business leads the charge for renewable energy. Now we wrote about that. You're probably thinking, yeah, okay, everyone's talking about that. Well, we wrote about that in a big way back in 2015. So this was several years ago when it was really hard for a company like uh, Google or, or, or Microsoft or Facebook or, or smaller quote smaller <laughs> buyers um, like Akamai or, or you know companies like. Uh, organic valley, right, um, to figure out how to buy this stuff, um, you know, how, what was the contract going to look like, where was the energy, was it on, you know, was it actually near the headquarters of the building, or was it going to be virtual, right, you're going to buy something in a different um, area of the country, so um, that I think uh, we would agree, and I think actually the world, the mainstream press would agree that we've really hit, hit the nail on that one, so those are the things I think we nailed,
0: yeah, we did. In fact, you know, the report came out in 15, but we we identified this as a trend back in the, you know the middle of 14. So we we really were ahead, and I think it is the timing on all of these that that is is what we get to pat ourselves on the back for. That you know, blockchain, uh, you know, 18 months ago, and we decided to name it one of the trends for 17 was not much of a thing, but we kind of saw it coming, and then and, and sure enough, it came. So.
1: Not so much. Where, where, where do we go off <laughs> Where do we go off, off
0: kilter? Where did we go wrong? Well, uh, since you picked one each from 2017, uh, 16, and 15, I'll, I'll do the same. Things that we didn't get as right as we had hoped. And, and, and some of that may be that they still become true. They just haven't happened yet. But I'll go in the reverse order. So back in 2015, we, we had a trend that said stranded assets were going to become a corporate liability. Stranded assets, of course, being anything of value that on a company's books that suddenly lose their value. the in the case we're talking about, it's around unburnable carbon. If you can't take it out of the ground, or because it has a tax or regulatory regulation around it, it its value is reduced, or in some cases goes to zero. That may still happen. It hasn't really happened yet. We haven't seen that, not just in the U.S. but around the world. Uh, oil continues to flow. Um, witness uh, the, the conversation we had a few minutes ago about increasing offshore drilling outside on the continental shelf outside the U.S. So that has not. And coal continues to burn and be dug up. So that's that's one that's still waiting to happen. 2016, we predicted that green infrastructure. Would grow like a weed, as we put it. Green infrastructure is refers to things that uh, where we use nature uh, to uh, do what we traditionally have used uh, hard infrastructure, concrete, rebar, and all that uh, for. And so, creating artificial reefs to uh, to to help uh, spawn uh, underwater life, and also to to mitigate against uh, flooding, for example. And that we said that was going to be happening; uh, those kinds of things were going to be ha- cropping up a lot. And that still, I think, is uh, makes a lot of sense. And the uh, the amount of infrastructure that's needed, as as we are beginning once again to talk about, in the U.S. and all around the world, about you know how do we have re- infrastructure that's that not only minimizes the negative impacts, but actually increases resilience by playing on the strengths of the natural world. But it hasn't really happened yet. And so that's a still an unchecked box that we named in 2016. And then last year, you wrote a piece, Heather, called Sustainable Sustainable Storytelling Adopts New Means and Memes. So this is how all those corporate sustainability reports were going to start becoming uh, start morphing into more creative ways of keeping the the public uh, abreast of, of progress um, and uh, maybe using you know video or maybe even some uh, augmented reality or or just uh, creative other creative processes uh, that we haven't really seen the the reports come out hundreds of them a year Fortunately, they don't print many copies anymore, so they're, they tend to be PDF or, or, some in some cases, websites. But, you know, we talked about VR, virtual reality, uh, being a means to tell corporate stories on sustainability. And um, I haven't seen anything yet. So that was what we did last year. Who knows? In two years, we may say, oh, see, we knew it was coming. And here it is. Um, but... Those are three that we didn't quite get right. But, um, you know, if you go back and look even at at last year's report um, just one year ago and look at the 10 trends around blockchain, around advanced materials and for circularity, rather sustainable development goals starting to become a business strategy about um, water starting to become a goal, particularly unlimited water, clean energy growing up. Um, environmental performance becoming a fiduciary responsibility, uh, invest, companies investing in their supply chains, mobility driving a new transportation paradigm, the storytelling one, and then resilience becoming a sustainability strategy. I mean, there's there's probably six, seven of those that I would say we got pretty well right.
4: Hi, I'm Marilyn Waite author of Sustainability at Work and fellow at NRDC's Environmental Entrepreneurs. I'm moving to the San Francisco Bay Area in 2018. My make or break challenge is to maintain my car-less lifestyle, where I move from point A to point B without a vehicle and the associated carbon emissions, where I walk, cycle, use ride-sharing, and take public transportation. I hope others join me. Happy 2018.
0: During 2018, we're going to be talking a lot about money. Green finance, or green fin as I like to call it, from a couple different angles. First, where do we find the money to pay for the transition to a sustainable economy? The goal set out by the Two Degree Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Developments, that's just part of it. Another part has to do with how companies factor in climate risks into their operations and strategies, and how mainstream investors value companies that do and don't. There's going to be a lot going on. At the end of 2018, for example, Mark Carney, who's the governor of the Bank of England and chair of the G20's Financial Stability Board, and Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, are going to report on the progress made by something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, better known as TCFD. That's a push by investors and companies to include information about climate risks in mainstream financial reporting. So what is TCFD and what makes this different from other climate disclosure frameworks? Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser untangled the TCFD in her recent piece, Why Voluntary Climate Risk Disclosure is Going Mainstream. Hey, Anya, so what's going on here?
5: Hi, Joel. So what's different about the TCFD as compared to other financial disclosures is that it is bringing climate disclosure scenario analysis and um, talking about long-term effects of the transition to clean energy and bringing those into mainstream financial filings. And already as of the close of last year, more than 200 companies globally committed to supporting the TCFD recommendations. Um, The TCFD lays out recommendations for incorporating this disclosure into Form 10-K, which is regulated by the SEC, um, and 20-F uh, for foreign companies that operate domestically in the U.S. um, within five years. And some of these firms are really heavy headers. Among them were 150 financial firms responsible for over $80 trillion in assets. And these are heavy headers like the Bank of America, BlackRock, and Citigroup. And more than a dozen companies like Insure Aviva and Philips Lighting have committed to start disclosing using the TCFD within an even shorter time frame of three years through the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. And the TCFD recommends that companies from all sectors, that's financial or building, construction, um, energy, describe the potential impacts of global warming in line with the two degrees Celsius scenario on their business strategy, financial planning, and their strategies for dealing with climate impacts, such as setting internal carbon prices or eventually incorporating cheaper renewable energy technologies. And I spoke with Mike Cruz, senior advisor to consultancy Brown Flynn and TCFD expert about how the financial and corporate world would shift with the widespread adoption of climate disclosure through the TCFD.
2: Ultimately successful. Uh, as far as the TCFD is concerned, is that the adoption rate by companies and then the uh, quality of the content wind up being similar to what the TCFD published in their five-year implementation path. That said, uh, that definition of success really depends on two things that happen in the background. Uh, First, I think boards of directors have to must exercise their oversight responsibilities. What I mean is that, specifically uh, regarding the TCFD, boards need to understand climate issues. They need to understand which climate risks and opportunities are material to the company. And then beyond that, the boards need to understand how those risks and opportunities will impact long term strategy, how the company is going to manage risks and take advantage of opportunities, and how the organization is going to measure performance. The other piece of that is that C-level executives, CEO, CFO, and I think with assistance from the investor relations officer, they need to engage with key investors and ask investors, and that's both active, actively managed funds as well as index funds, how they're going to use the climate-related information that's called for by the TCFD. If the CEOs and CFOs believe from their conversations with investors that the information will be used, uh, in part anyway, to drive investment decision-making, then the C-suite will drive implementation by corporations. So that also means on the flip side of that, investors need to be ready to explain how they're going to use the information.
0: So how is TCFD different from other frameworks out there like the Carbon Disclosure Project CDP standards?
5: The TCFD recommendations aren't creating anything new. They're drawing from existing reporting frameworks like the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or SASB, Global Reporting Initiative, GRI Standards. But it focuses instead very narrowly on how climate change and the shift to renewable energy will impact companies financially. And here's what Mike had to say.
2: This is very narrowly focused. It's not focused, uh, for example, as GRI is, on a broad range of environmental, social, and governance issues. It's focused specifically on climate change. It has a mandate. Uh, the mandate come, came from the uh, G20 and the Financial Stability Board, and it was, uh, it was a relatively long process. It was a couple of years, uh, and it was a global process. So uh, I think all of those things combine to make it a little bit different from some of the existing sustainability standards.
0: Okay. So who's going to be leading on financial disclosure? I assume that it'll be some sectors before others. And I imagine that there'll be some kind of learning curve for companies to get up to speed.
5: Right. And I was also curious to know who's going to lead because not every company has the expertise or resources to do this deep dive on scenario analysis for climate change. So it's going to be the big companies, like the ones that we've, I previously mentioned, um, that are already signed up to support the TCFD um, or the CDSB's three-year implementation time frame. And it's going to be the Global 500 that are leading the way, um, Mike Cruz said. And he co-authored a research paper that showed some surprising players like oil companies are already looking out many years into the future and anticipating these major shifts to renewable energy and uh, climate change mitigation and how it's going to impact their bottom line. And basically, if those companies can do it, he said, then this can proliferate across all different sectors.
2: The leaders are going to be the largest companies in the world. On one hand, they've got a much greater sensitivity to their reputational risks than some smaller companies might have. And they also have the, the resources and the depth of expertise to capture and prepare and deliver the disclosures that the TCFD is looking for. The Global 500 will lead this, and as the sector and industry leaders, they will start to pull along some of the mid-cap and smaller companies eventually. The research that Bob Eccles and I did, we purposely focused on a industry that many people would think would have a difficult time with the disclosures. Uh, But there are a couple of factors that come into play to drive the disclosures that we did see. First, by the very nature of the uh, extractive industry, specifically oil and gas, these companies are looking out at, look are using energy forecasts that look out 20 or 30 years. The companies have to be prepared internally to make decisions about how they are going to cope with energy needs and the changes in energy needs 20 or 30 years from now. So uh, it, I think the, uh, the other thing that drove it to some degree, uh, several years ago, the SEC published an interpretive release on uh, climate risks and asked, asked companies that were registered with the SEC to provide certain information. And there's a wide range of opinion on whether or not the companies are doing a good or a poor job. But if you look at the strategy-related disclosures for the oil and gas companies, what we're seeing is an eye towards the future. Uh, These companies are talking about the investments that they're making in technologies such as carbon capture and storage, they're investing in wind and solar, they're investing in battery technologies, and with an eye towards the at least the foreseeable existence, foreseeable future uh, existence of uh, the internal combustion engine, they're focused on things like lubricants that will be more efficient. Uh, That should play a role in reducing emissions uh, from internal combustion cars until, uh, ideally, battery cars uh, and things like hydrogen fuel cells take over, perhaps 30 years from now.
5: So at the heart of the TCFD is this implementation guidance um, showing how to disclose and that concerns governance, strategy, risk management, specific metrics and targets. And Because of this, there's been widespread corporate interest in the TCFD, and I believe we'll start to see results of the disclosures this year.
0: Well, as I said, this is a topic we're going to be talking about all year and probably for years after that, Um, Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser. Thanks, Anya. Thanks, Joel. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out, go to Greenbiz.com slash Center Stage or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The tech industry doesn't waste time getting down to business in the new year with the annual Consumer Electronics Show, aka CES, in Las Vegas, the self-described global stage for innovation. Now, in its 51st year, the conference draws more than 180,000 attendees or or thereabouts. In 2017, there were more than 4,000 exhibitors. I don't know what the count is for this year, but we'll, we'll, we'll be checking. And as the name suggests, the event got its start as a homage to gadgets. Gadgets of all types, ranging from mobile phones to gaming consoles and smart home devices like connected doorbells or assistants like the now familiar Amazon Echo and Alexa. But about 10 years ago, connected cars became a major theme when General Motors showed up with one of its first automated vehicles, One of the journalists who has been following that evolution closely is Wayne Cunningham from CNET, which is part of the CBS Interactive Empire. A Bay Area native, Wayne has been covering the tech industry for more than 20 years, and he is currently managing editor of CNET's Roadshow site, where he regularly covers self-driving car systems, alternative fuels, and connected car technologies. Wayne is one of the many tech journalists braving CES this year, and he joins us today on Green Biz 350 to share his impressions. Wayne, thank you for being on the podcast, and I'm glad you have power. Welcome.
6: Yeah, thanks, Heather. Appreciate the opportunity.
1: So we'll get right down to it. What are some of the announcements that rose above the noise for you um, so far?
6: Well, the biggest, and this isn't something we see at CES every year, is a whole new car. And this is coming from a whole new car company. A new company called Byton uh, out of China. Uh, They've got a new car that they just launched here in concept form, although I was looking at it and it's kind of more of a prototype because they're actually talking about production of this car in late 2019. So that's pretty fast for the automotive industry and to see a whole new car come out. Um, It's electric, fully electric, of course, and has some really innovative uh, dashboard technologies. They're really pushing the envelope. The way I sort of described it is – It's got all of next decade's hottest technologies.
1: Yeah, so China, obviously very hot on electric vehicles. And um, I'm sure there's many more companies, uh, pretty much every mainstream automaker has been talking up their EV product line. um, And more cities have been talking about banning dirty combustion alternatives. So what other uh, electric vehicles have you seen or what other um, enabling technologies have you heard about? Anything truly new?
6: Well, there's some, most of the stuff that we're seeing is, uh, concepts, uh, some ideas about what the future is going to look like. And one interesting thing, I mean, there's a big tie in between electric cars and self driving cars. And one of the ways we're probably really going to see it, I I would say most people are going to experience a self-driving car as a robo taxi instead of having, you know, self driving car in their driveway. And there's a lot of, uh, looks toward what that's going to be like in the future. And one of the things I saw. Uh, Was uh, in uh, the Harman International one of the big automotive suppliers in their uh, booth They had this concept called the snap and the idea here is you can completely uh, Separate the cabin from the chassis. So they had a chassis. It's a big self-driving chassis fully electric and they can put different cabins on it. So this idea you know has to do with the fact that uh, chassis and cabins can wear out at different uh, rates so you know, if you get a lot of use in a passenger cabin, the seats might wear out, but the under the underside of the car might be perfectly good. So why throw out, you know, the whole thing when you could just, uh, you know, replace one part? And the idea here, too, is they also have, you know, freight delivery or, or you know, maybe urban delivery cabins or different kinds of cabins for different purposes. You'd you have a private uh, car cabin in there, too. Um, I checked out this one. It was The idea was it was a uh, shared ride, a ride-hailing cabin that you might share with a few other people. And they, they did up the interior really nice. And this actually embodies a lot of uh, concepts I've seen from other companies, too. One of the big ones is that um, you'll have your profile, all your preferences in the cloud. And when you get in the, the ride-hailing car, the shared car, it'll do some kind of facial recognition or you, maybe you'll tap your phone on it and it'll immediately download all your preferences so you can have your your music all the things you're used to having will be there with you even though it's not your your car.
7: Oh,
1: that's pretty cool. I mean like so actually I have to ask you a question. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: go neophyte neophyte car person. What's the difference between a concept and a prototype?
2: Well,
6: so we see a lot of co- or I see a lot of concepts at auto shows and they can often be just something that's a just a design exercise from, uh, you know, a car company's designers, you know, maybe they want to show the, the direction they're thinking about going in the future, but you know, you'll never see that concept car come to anything close to production. Different car companies do it different ways. Some, like Honda is a good example. They tend to, things they call concepts are usually, uh, will go into production fairly shortly, looking very much the same Um, And that's kind of the the tack that Byton took uh, when it showed off this this concept slash prototype car. It's really something that, uh, you know, it's very much production intent. They did some things like they use uh, cameras for side mirrors instead of actual side mirrors. That's something I see in concept cars a lot. It's not legal to do that yet, at least in the U.S. Uh, there has to be some, some regulatory change for those to be uh, used. But there's actually a good argument for using cameras instead of those full huge mirrors on the sides of cars in the fact that uh, those mirrors create a lot of aerodynamic drag, and that really cuts down your fuel economy, your energy efficiency, and cameras take a much smaller uh, footprint and so they can be much more aero efficient.
1: Yeah. And you, you know, so that's, that's pretty cool. You mentioned, I, and I'm thinking about the word consumer, right? This, the CES used to be the consumer electronic show. And, um, but you, you mentioned that many of these things are likely not to be like an individual person buying them like that, that cool, the cabin, the concept of changing, um, the chassis and, and, and kind of reconfiguring what you need. Maybe it sounds like a fleet or a, um, a city kind of buyer, if you will. I mean, is that, is that how these cars are being positioned? Like that someone's going to buy them for a fleet and then they'll get shared in some, in some way.
6: Yeah, that's definitely the case. Uh, with automotive at CES, it's more of a business to business play. I mean, a lot of the stuff I see is stuff that will, make your cars really cool in the future, but it's not a product you can pick up off a shelf uh, like some of the other electronics we see here. Uh, And like another example is I saw the, uh, there's a company called Navia out of France. That's N-A-V-Y-A. And they were showing off their, what they're calling the Autonom Cab, which is a fully self-driving car. It's actually, it works. It's an electric car, uh, fully self-driving. Doesn't even have any driver controls. It's what they call level five self-driving. And it's designed to be something you could, uh, you know, bring up an app, uh, and just like Uber or Lyft, just you know, ask for a ride. It'll it'll come and get you. You can indicate whether you want to share the ride with other people or not. And uh, and it was really comfortable. I got in that car with the the company's uh, CEO, and, and we sat down, and it was it was actually a great place to have a meeting because it had uh, uh, two rows of three seats facing each other, and because of the lack of uh, uh, driver controls and electric powertrain, it was just. Uh, it lacked all those legacy things from old combustion engine cars. So it's, uh, it was a lot more convenient, a lot more space efficient. Uh, there's few cars you can find that can actually seat six people, especially you know, something as small as this uh, Autonom cab from Navia. So that, that was pretty cool. And I think that's something, you know, yeah, you won't personally buy a car like that, but, you know, you'll use one.
1: Meetings on the go. I'm not sure I want to be face in the back, though. I probably get carsick. <laughs> okay. Um, I mentioned that GM kind of started this this whole this dialogue um, about 10 years ago. Um, they're, of course, not there. Um, haven't been there for a couple of years. I think this is the second year they haven't chose not to at least um, exhibit in a major way. Um, but one of the big high-profile CEOs making a keynote Um, There, this this past week was um, Ford's leader Jim Hackett. Um, Any takeaways from his presentation? Anything we should be watching for um, from Ford? Uh,
6: He was really uh, Hackett was really emphasizing a lot of the things that Ford has been talking about over the past couple of years. They're talking, you know, in a very kind of high concept way about smart cities, smart mobility. It's it's definitely useful stuff to think about. Uh, but as far as the actual things we saw, I mean, they talked about having um, what they call V2X, which is vehicle-to-everything communication in their cars. are working with Qualcomm to do that in the future. That's, that's got a lot of good potential to uh, prevent crashes because your car can, well, it can know what the, the traffic signal is going to be like and, and alert you to that. It can also alert you to cross traffic that might not be stopping. Uh, so that was one of their announcements uh, that kind of relates to the smart city thing. Although the probably the most relevant announcement uh, that they uh, Ford had at uh, this conference was they announced that uh, they're actually going to integrate uh, Waze, the uh, navigation application, in their cars. Wow! And I know, and, and nobody's really done that yet. So that's actually probably going to have the most like immediate impact of anything.
1: Hmm. Okay, my final question. Lots of things to see there. What's the one thing you've seen at CES that really blew your mind, or, or that will have you thinking differently? Is there any one thing that jumps out?
2: Uh, I'll give you
6: two things. Oh, okay, I would do the same. one is the Biton car because that, if you get a chance to look at the cab of that car, it's, it's really innovative, really interesting, and something that they do intend to produce. Another thing is in the Samsung uh, booth; their supplier uh, or their company, uh, Harmon, has this thing called they call the digital uh, cockpit concept and what they're doing is they're using a variety of screens they have curved oled screens that go uh that form to the the surfaces inside of you know in the car's dashboards they don't have to be rectangular they don't have to be flat and they have uh, a QLED screen which is uh, samsung technology that's really sharp a really sharp bright screen and they use that concept that idea of uh when you get in the car it recognizes who you are and downloads your preferences too. So it has that same idea that, you know, we're kind of seeing from uh, different companies.
1: Well, I'm not sure if I'm glad or sad that I wasn't there. It's a little crazy. (laughs) Don't miss Vegas, but do miss all of the, the technologies to think about. And I really appreciate you checking in with us and and helping us see what was in Vegas this past week. Thank you, Wayne.
4: Uh, You're welcome. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Gabe Klein with CityFi and Fontenelle's Partners, and I'm excited about 2018. The last few years, I've been very focused on autonomous vehicles, um, technology in general, as it relates to city transportation departments and planning departments, and bringing together public and private sector leaders um, to talk about how to work together. Uh, I am continuing that work in 2018, but also very focused on parking, So we have a tremendous amount of parking in this country, and there's an old saying, we don't really have any transportation problems. We have land use problems with transportation symptoms, and I believe that wholeheartedly. We have up to 25% of our downtowns being devoted to storing vehicles, vehicles that are polluting our environment, vehicles that are taking up a lot of space, that are causing fatalities. And so with the advent of technology and autonomous vehicles that are going to change the um, the technology landscape, there's an opportunity to change the physical landscape. And so, working with developers and cities and others to realize how much money and space we can save and redevote to affordable housing, to active transportation uses, um, and we can make a lot more money in the process. So, uh, really continuing my work aligning incentives and outcomes for people and the environment.
1: There have been literally thousands of words dedicated to expert analysis of changes to the U.S. tax code that took effect on January 1st of this year. Leading into the legislation's approval, before the holidays, there was plenty of justifiable concern over how the new policy could hurt corporate adoption of solar and wind energy as a strategy for offsetting carbon emissions. The final law, however, doesn't look quite so damaging. Senior writer Cassandra Sweet spent some time this week, digging into the ramifications of the new policy for corporate renewable energy buyers. And she joins me now to chat about the possible side effects. Welcome, Cassandra. Hi,
8: Heather. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm glad you're on this. I'm glad we're both sort of poking into this. Um, and it, it seems to be still a developing story. So, um Let's first start out. Can you summarize the specific changes that corporate energy buyers should really be studying? like what what in this law should they be paying attention to and focusing on?
8: So heather, the the tax law, which uh, was finalized and passed in December and signed into law by uh, President Donald Trump, uh, actually was spared the wind and solar power industries from a lot of kind of draconian, provisions that had been in the bill earlier you know attempts to roll back federal clean energy incentives of all of various types um, and so they the the solar and wind power markets have basically uh, retained most of what they had before almost everything and they're kind of two changes that could change things for those industries but They're not really expected to to inflict any kind of damage, but they could make financing a little bit harder for some of the developers. So the first one is called the Base Erosion Anti-Abuse Tax, or BEAT for short, which is a lot easier to say. And what that does is it, it basically limits the ability of companies that have overseas operations. It limits the amount of renewable energy tax credits that they can use to offset taxes uh, on their foreign transactions. So taxes that they have to pay on money that they might send to their overseas operations. So it, it, it reduces the amount of renewable energy credits they can use uh, to 80% of the value of those credits from 100% previously. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of in the weeds, but but it is a reduction, so that could just lead to, I don't know, less money available to uh, renewable energy developers. It's just more complication uh, that could also increase their costs. And then just the second thing is the reduction of the overall corporate tax rate to 21% from 35%, which is a great thing for businesses everywhere, generally. But because of the way that renewable energy developers use tax credits to finance their projects, it, it reduces the usefulness of clean energy tax credits to investors. So that means less money for solar and wind developers and, and developers of other projects, you know, that would be available to them from these, what they're called tax equity investors. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of in the weeds little details. I think a lot of people are expecting and and hoping that the renewable energy markets kind of adjust to these changes and find other ways to compensate for any lost, you know, funding that they might experience because of it. So all in all, for wind and solar power, the tax law was was a good thing. Yeah. So at least it wasn't bad. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. Well, or as bad as it could have been. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I do hear, I do continue to hear um, noise, concern, if you will, over some other things, though, um, especially energy efficiency and other, you know, we've mentioned solar and wind a couple of times, but there are other things that the corporate world is investing in, such as fuel cells and geothermal, right, combined heat and power. And I know that a lot of manufacturers use those for industrial facilities. So where do we stand on on that? Does do those things get credit of any sort? And and what about energy efficiency? Like where do we stand? Is there anything that um, our, our listeners should really focus on there?
8: That's right. So you know if we want to transition to a clean energy economy you know, we need more than just solar and wind power, right? We, we want to use all the tools that are available in the clean energy and conservation toolbox. Those projects sometimes cost more than just conventional um, electricity and heating. And so having a, a tax credit for that is really important to kind of... Getting it more broadly adopted, and then as you mentioned, um, energy efficiency improvements at commercial properties, uh, tax credits for those expired in 2016. So I, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but my understanding is that commercial property owners can still get a lot of savings from installing energy efficiency um, uh, technology and improvements. However, if, if those folks were, be, were able to get federal tax credits on top of that, I think that would really drive greater adoption and, uh, you know, just help boost that industry um, and companies that are thinking about doing it.
1: Yeah. And there's still a lot of state level support, right? For, for these things. Um, I, I still hear about, you know, actually, I was just talking to Whirlpool this week and they have their, and in, um, in, this is back to wind, but they're investing in onsite. Um, and uh, they, they are studying these issues right now. They, they, they mentioned that they're, they're using state programs. You feel like there's a, a greater role for, for state leadership?
8: I do. I mean, a lot of states, California, uh, a lot of the East, East Coast states, New York and Massachusetts, have programs like this. And, and I think those are really important to, uh, you know, co- to continue to support uh, these businesses and, you know, deals that are being reached and and companies' plans for doing this. But I think the federal tax credits are a really important kind of baseline because state and local incentives kind of come and go or, you know, and sometimes they are – designed to kind of ratchet down, you know, as more uh, with greater adoption. And so the federal tax credits are really necessary to, you know, to to expanding the success story of energy efficiency in the United States, you know, beyond where it's it's already being used.
1: So I get the sense that the jury is a little bit still out on the potential impact of the tax changes. Um, that, that actually maybe you need to go hire an accountant to figure it out. Um, but you know, any advice that you'd give to the corporate, um, energy buyers out there? Should they be looking at other financing? Do we do do we think maybe leasing or other options will become, um, more prevalent? Any any uh, early indications
8: there? Well, I think I think the issue of the renewable, you know, s- renewable energy supply. I, I don't think that's I think that's, that's pretty well set for any company that wants to buy solar or wind power. I think the, you know, what most people are saying that I'm hearing is that those markets probably aren't going to change. But I think companies that want to, to invest in commercial property energy efficiency and might be looking at other sources such as fuel cells that could help them with their resilience, you know, so keeping electricity flowing in the event of a blackout, you know, they, they should reach out to their representatives in Washington and and let them know that they support this because there is legislation uh, that's been introduced in Washington by uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, who's a Republican, as you know. Uh, and so there there is a bipartisan effort right now in Washington to push through legislation that would include all these other clean energy sources uh, in a wider tax credit bill so that these other sources would also have the same tax credits associated with them that wind and solar power do. Um, And uh, so it seems like there's a lot of momentum in Washington for this. However, it's going to be kind of another nail-biter as to how they'll succeed with this effort and and when it might happen. So
1: sounds like you and I should reach for the Emory board and <laughs> stay on the case. But thanks, Cassandra, for checking in with us. Looking forward to more coverage.
8: Thank you, Heather.
0: As I said earlier in the show, we're meeting this week in Juneau Beach, Florida, at the headquarters of NextEra and FPL, formerly Florida Power and Light. Um, And uh, we had one of the people from FPL Next Air that spoke to us is uh, Amy Albury, Director of Environmental Relations and Sustainability. Um, And she was nice enough to step away uh, for a few minutes to talk to me. Uh, First of all, welcome to 350.
7: Thank you very much, Joel.
0: So one of the things that you said, Amy, that interested me was that how you made a little bit of a pivot in looking beyond your own corporate footprint, environmental footprint, and started looking at that of your customers. Talk a little bit about why you did that and what happened.
7: Absolutely. Thank you. It really was a game changer for us internally. We had spent many years working on our footprint, improving our emissions and our water use. And when we realized that we actually provide a product, which is electricity, to a a number of, of individuals and businesses, and they were trying to reduce their emissions and their carbon footprints as well, we recognized that now we were able to help them reach their goals, not just our own footprint goals, but their goals, and it was a game changer we realized then that something that had been uh, the right thing to do was now actually a, another way that we generated revenue for our business
0: so how so what was that a consulting business is that what you had or was it take a different form
7: no a different form actually going out and selling energy credits selling renewable energy directly to to large businesses in addition to the utilities that we've been working with for for a number of years and uh, and it's been a great part of our business
0: so uh, what did you learn about your customers that you didn't know?
7: We learned that our customers didn't know a lot about energy. And we were able to give them a, a lot of information about not just purchasing renewable products, but also energy efficiency in their own operations. Um, but then in some cases, we learned a lot of our customers are actually pretty savvy uh, I- investors. And, um, and so we, we actually learned new ways to um, offer our, our business offerings to them that made sense for their, their operations.
0: I imagine that you had to train employees and you had to sort of create some new offerings that involve the employee base. How have employees reacted to this?
7: That's right. So the folks that are actually doing the origination work didn't know much about sustainability.
0: So can you explain what origination work is?
7: Absolutely. So these are the folks that are actually going and and originating new contracts with various large businesses and utilities. And they were starting to find that the sustainability professionals for their companies were in the room with them when negotiations were happening. And they came back to my team and said, you, you got to tell us what this means. And so we, we were able to do a lot of internal education with our employees about really what sustainability means, the vocabulary of sust- sustainability.
0: So anytime sustainability people can get involved with the revenue side of
7: the business, That's a pretty big deal. That is the game changer.
0: So uh, is there more to come, or where do you see taking
7: this next? Oh, I'm certain there's more to come with climate change. Water is... Probably one of the next biggest things, I think, for all of us, especially here in Florida, and when we can help folks understand the water benefits that are associated with renewable energy, uh, I think we're, we're going to, to really see some, some more offerings related to, to maybe credits with water.
0: We'll look forward to seeing that. Uh, Amy Albury, Director of Environmental Relations and Sustainability at FPNL. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. While you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, showing the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, inform people that today, the 12th, is the final day to get an early bird rate for the Green Biz 18 event great event coming up in uh, February early February so if you're uh, listened all the way to the end of this podcast and it's still Friday uh, check that out and uh, we really hope you can make it you can still come after Friday but um, just kind of cost you a little bit more as always you can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com we'd love to hear from you Greenbiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.